Welcome to Interventions, the intellectual history podcast. I'm Hetty van Hensbergen. And my name is Daniel Aleman. And today we're talking to Dr. Banu Ternaolu. Banu is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge and a Research Associate of St. John's College. Banu is a specialist in Ottoman political thought, focusing on the history of concepts such as republicanism, secularism and anti-imperialism. She studied in Istanbul and Oxford before coming to Cambridge for her doctorate. Her thesis on the formation of Turkish republicanism, which she completed in 2015, won the Political Studies Association's prestigious Sir Ernest Barker Prize for Best Dissertation in Political Theory. Banu, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. As always on this podcast, our first question is when and how you first came to the study of intellectual history. Um, so this is um, actually a long story. It started as an interest in German philosophy at the Deutsche Schule, which is a gymnasium in Istanbul, where I first encountered German idealism and romanticism. This early education shaped my future career choices. Also, I come from a political background. My grandfather was a politician and I grew up listening to his struggles in Turkish political life in 1950s. So the combination of these experiences led me to think from an early age that I wanted to study politics and philosophy or combine these two disciplines. So I did a um, double major in international relations and history at Koç University in Istanbul, and I took various classes on the history of political thought and political ideologies in my second and third year. In my last year, I completed an honors project on the emergence of the Second Reich and its imperial age with Norman Stone. It was on Germany's cultural turn and its economic and political changes during that period and their reflection on German political thought. I also did another project um, that year with Dr. Shulnaz Yilmaz on the concept of freedom with a particular focus on Kant, uh, Marx and Hegel. Those were my first attempts to undertake independent research and I was fascinated by the study of political thought and intellectual history. With the encouragement of my professors, I went to Oxford for my master's in political theory. The lectures I took there, particularly by Professor Michael Frieden, had an extremely important impact on the way I understood politics and ideologies. He inspired me with vigor for the topic of republicanism. My master's dissertation examined academic debates between the so-called neo-Roman and neo-Athenian conceptions of republicanism. While undertaking this research, I was um, introduced to Skinner's and Pocock's works, and learned about various meanings of republicanism, which were quite different from the Turkish understanding of what republicanism is. Um, so this led me to think about the following questions. Has Turkish republicanism been influenced by classical models of republicanism? So what are its origins? What's unique about it? And to what extent has it been part of a wider international republican mainstream? So those questions, I thought, could not be answered without understanding politics historically. So the natural path in my academic career was to undertake my PhD here at Cambridge because of its contextual and historical approach to politics, recognized appropriate here. I was extremely lucky to have been supervised by Professor John Dunn as one of his last students. Working with him was uh, transformative in my entire approach to the history of political theory. He was magically inspiring and extremely supportive, and he still acts as my mentor. 
Um, and this led to my doctoral dissertation on the development of republicanism, which I converted into a book recently. So in that book project, The Formation of Turkish Republicanism, you argue that the story of Turkish republicanism begins long before the 1923 proclamation of the Republic and the political career of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. So when and with whom does that story start? Um, to answer when and how the story of republicanism in Turkey started, I adopted an intellectual genealogy of the roots of republicanism. This genealogy revealed the slow but insistent evolution of the term republic, cumhuriyet, and the notion of republicanism, cumhuriyetçilik, from mere words into a more complex and ambiguous political concept from the mid-19th century onwards, and later into a political ideology with the formation of the republic. So the story started in the early Ottoman Empire. Derived from Arabic, the term republic appeared as a, a mere word in Ottoman political writings, for instance, to describe the Venetian Republic, Venedik Cumhuru. But little attention was paid to the republic as a type of political government until the French Revolution. So with the French Revolution, fresh ideas migrated from France into the Ottoman Empire, and the term republic began to appear widely in Ottoman political writings. However, after the Napoleonic invasion, the term gained a negative connotation and began to be seen as a dangerous expansion type of political regime. In my book, I argued that republicanism as a political concept emerged in the 1860s in Turkey. A vibrant debate occurred between three distinct republican positions within the young Ottoman movement, the Islamic, the liberal and the radical. In the 1890s, the Parisian branch of the Young Turks, inspired by French positivists, picked up and developed the liberal ideas of their predecessors. And with the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, they introduced their ideas to the Ottoman Empire and laid the most salient intellectual and institutional foundation for the Republic. Turkish republicanism, however, was eclipsed by a blend of ideas like German militarism, nationalism, social Darwinism and elitism during the Balkan Wars and the First World War. Yet the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire reinforced the republic as a viable political ideal and republicanism as an ideological option. In the Turkish Republic's formative year, uh, which is between 1922 and 1925, these three rival conceptions of republicanism, which I just mentioned, Islamic, liberal and radical, re-emerged and renewed their rivalry. The ideological battle ended with the triumph of radical republicanism. Mustafa Kemal and his followers preserved and named their um, victorious vision Kemalism. So in short, modern-day Turkish republicanism represents the outcome of centuries of intellectual dispute between these traditions. So this was the long and rich story that I told in my book, which was the first full-length study of the intellectual history of Turkish republicanism. As you've just mentioned, the history of Turkish republicanism is often equated with Atatürk, the founder and president of the Republic of Turkey. Can you briefly tell us why Atatürk's vision has come to be seen as the quintessential account of republicanism in Turkey? Mustafa Kemal obviously had a very clear political, social and cultural vision, which was to bring the country to the level of contemporary civilizations and to secularize a society composed of patriotic, nationalist, equal citizens through civic education and rapid reforms. He was mainly inspired by Rousseau. 
For him, sovereignty resides solely in the people and this right could not be taken away. Therefore, the nation is always right. He conceived the republic as one and indivisible and as the highest form of government. Turkish nation was free and will never subject itself to the will of external powers. So he was an advocate of um, anti-imperialism. Um, his vision inspired other political leaders like Gandhi, Nehru, Ali Jinnah and uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser. But Mustafa Kemal Atatürk was no Marx or Lenin. He was not a political thinker who produced a major political theory or an ideology. His great speech, which he delivered in 1927 in the parliament, was a long description of the Turkish war of independence against the imperial powers and the events that occurred in the aftermath. But the speech was taken by his followers as the guidebook of Kemalism later on. What's largely overlooked, however, was that um, the Republic had its own intellectual founders, such as Jamal Nouri, Yunus Nadi and Yusuf Akçura, and positivist ideologues like Ziya Gökalp and Ahmet Ağolu. As Professor Shukrahaneoğlu put it in one of his articles, Mustafa Kemal's role was to interpret their ideas and translate those ideas which were produced back in 1910s into practice and implement them vigorously as the head of the republic. Initial attempts to construct a new state ideology took place during Mustafa Kemal's lifetime. Its core principles were identified as republicanism, statism, populism, nationalism and reformism by the Republican People's Party. These ideas were incorporated into its own program as six arrows in 1935, henceforth Kemalism became a partisan engagement. With the incorporation of Kemalism into the constitution of 1937, uh, which remained in effect until 1961, it was consolidated as the official state ideology. Part of the consolidation of Kemalist ideology was the rewriting of history. Kemalist historiography emphasized the foundation of the republic as essential to Turkish history. However, this historiography neglected the Ottoman past by ratifying the republican presence. Kemalist historians compose a new Turkish history from their own perspective and express their radical vision as the only coherent or quintessential republican ideology. Kemalism has, it, has established itself as a successful secular state ideology, and throughout the 20th century, Kemalism dominated Turkish political and social life until it came to be challenged by the Islamists in the new millennium. Much of Western scholarship on the intellectual history of republicanism focuses on a distinctly Western tradition, one that is associated with values such as liberty, citizenship, and self-government. Would you say that Turkish thought about the Cumhuriyet, the Republic, belongs to this tradition as well? Or should we rather think of it as a different Middle Eastern story? Well, um, an interest in republicanism shown by scholars have, uh, for the most part, not led to any reflection on how republicanism might fare beyond European or American context. Um, rather, studies of republicanism have been limited largely to the Anglophone world or Western traditions. In the extensive works of Pocock's on Anglophone Republicanism, or in the multi-volume analysis of European Republicanism, entitled Republicanism and Constitutionalism, A Shared European Heritage, edited by Quentin Skinner and others, there is virtually no mention of Republicanism elsewhere. So my study of the evolution of Turkish Republicanism um, showed that there were Republicanism outside the geographical confines of the continent. 
So it's questionable that whether republicanism like other intellectual traditions or ideologies like socialism and liberalism is actually a Western tradition. I think a study on Turkish republicanism is especially necessary given the lack of a sustained theorization of republicanism in current scholarly literature on the Middle East and particularly on Turkey. In my work, I highlighted uh, three different uh, Republican visions, each with different meanings and implication. So returning to your question, all shared the ideas of anti-despotism, liberty, self-governance, citizenship, constitutionalism, and sovereignty in common, but the meanings attached to them were quite different. Um, most of the Ottoman 19th century thinkers lived in exile in European cities like France, London and Geneva, and were exposed to European thinkers and philosophers. Radical Republicans, for example, were inspired by French radical thinkers like Rousseau and Jacobins at the time, while Liberal Republicans' main inspiration came from Montesquieu, Locke, Gisot, and later British Liberals like John Stuart Mill. They both believe that the appropriateness of Western ideas must be assessed by how they fit into Ottoman society. So in other words, they try to combine Western and Eastern influences in order to produce their own original theories. Islamic republicanism, in contrast, was least open to Western influences. So the tradition rested on a number of core values, such as a belief in social equality, attachment to Muslim solidarity, hostility towards materialism and westernization, a belief in strong centralized state and caliphate. Islamic Republicans believe that Muslims should not adopt Western political values and forms of government. They believe that the early Islamic state of the 7th century already had basic features of republicanism like self-governance, liberty, non-patriotism and equality. Therefore, the Muslims should revive those forgotten values in order to overcome absolutism of the Ottoman Empire or of the Ottoman rulers. This could be done by introducing a representative assembly uh, called Meshveret in Turkish and by uh, restoring the Sharia. I think that examining Turkish Republicans' growth from its Ottoman origins allows us to radically think the scholarly inquiry that treats Western and other political realms as entirely separate. So I believe that the distinction between Eastern and Western political thought is quite artificial and unnecessary. So we should focus more on the reception and transmission of ideas between different contexts. One of the exiled group of Turkish intellectuals you focus on in your work is the group in Paris known as the Young Turks. You argue that they adopted and adapted the ideas of Auguste Comte and were remarkably successful in translating their political ideas across countries, not only between France and the Ottoman Empire, but also across the Atlantic to Latin America. So firstly, what was the vision of the Young Turks that proved so internationally influential? And secondly, can you explain how they might help us think about the transnational and even global transmission of ideas? The most significant French positivist influence on the Young Turks was Pierre Lafitte, who after Comte assumed the effective leadership of French positivism. His influence came through Ahmed Reza, who was the founder of uh, the Parisian branch of Young Turks in 1895. His leadership defined the Parisian Young Turks' philosophical outlook. He took part in positivist debates at the Collège de France, where Lafitte was um, a history professor and he became one of his followers and orthodox disciples. 
The Young Turks were actively involved in French positivist and intellectual circles, contributing to the internationalization of positivism. Their impact on positivism in France itself became more apparent when Ahmed Reza joined the, the Société Positiviste in 1906 and became one of the 13 founding members of the Société Positiviste Internationale, uh, which was the chief positivist society at that time. So he was a very influential figure, but not much um, is known or written about him. So Ahmed Reza wrote extensively in the leading positivist journals like La Revue Occidentale, or La Revue uh, Internationale Positiviste, shaping French public opinion. Um, so he prompted intense interaction with other contemporary French positivists, intellectuals and politicians who supported the Young Turks cause in their own writings. So Ottoman positivists did extend beyond European geographical boundaries and reaching Latin America. In a letter, for example, um, Juan Enrique, a leading Chilean Orthodox positivist, expressed his appreciation for the Young Turk movement and thanked Ahmed Reza for inspiring Latin American positivist movement by instilling the hope of establishing the religion of humanity. Similarly, the Mexican positivist Augustin Aragon hailed Ahmed Reza as their dear and distinguished Turkish co-religionist. However, we aren't aware how they came to know of Ahmed Reza, but I would imagine that it has been through his writings in the French positivist journals. Ottoman positivist efforts to spread positivism echoed Combes' mission to unite the Orient and the Occident through intellectual means in order to construct a universal moral order and guarantee peace and order. But unlike Combs, they did not believe that the Eastern nations must be guided passively by uh, the Western civilizations. Rather, they insisted on the equality and solidarity between nations. So by placing humanity at the heart of their positivism, they offered a new ideal for East and West relations. So to answer the second part of your question, this shows us that ideas are not static. They travel over time and space and transcend the conventional boundaries between different spheres. As such, I think the divide between Western and non-Western political thought is more fluid than it's been assumed. We should understand political thinking as an interaction between ideas from different uh, settings across the world. It undertakes to recognize political thinking in its full plurality and trace the complex processes involved in the formulation of ideas. In your work, you also stress that the tendency to equate republicanism and secularism may be misplaced. So how then should we understand the relationship between religion and republicanism in a Turkish context? Uh, well, there is indeed a Kemalist attitude towards religion, republicanism and Turkish identity. Inspired by French laïcité, Kemalists placed secularism or laïclik in Turkish as their core and indispensable value. The abolition of the caliphate of 1924 was the first and the most radical step towards laïcité. As expressed in the Constitution of 1928, laicity guarantees liberty of conscience and divorces citizenship from Islam. The Republic ceased to define itself as an Islamic state and abolished all intermediary religious institutions and bodies. By the same token, laicity also stipulates that the state must adopt a position of public neutrality towards all religious faiths. This laic vision was promoted through secular education. 
The Unification of Education Act of 1924 closed all religious schools, replacing them with a system of state schools based largely on the French system and employing secular teachers. This whole secularization process was connected with creating a modern progressive nation. The state designed a new system in which um, religions were incorporated into the structure of the nation-state and under its control with the establishment of the Directorate of Religious Affairs. So like in France, as Professor Robert Toombs explained in his works, most people see the history of modern Turkey featuring a clear separation of Islam from public sphere. It's still common today in Turkey to define the core republican value as laicity. This understanding has been consolidated also with history writing. The groundbreaking work of uh, Niazi Berkes is, for example, called The Development of Secularism in Turkey. Most historiography on republicanism insists on a linear uh, deterministic history, which receives its apotheosis under the Republic of Mustafa Kemal. This historiography sees two Turkeys. One is a religious backwards Ottoman Empire, and the other one is a modern progressive secular Turkey, which was established in 1923. So these policies, however, created fear and anxiety among the religious and conservative groups. People were afraid of losing their religion, which triggered uprising and revolts in the 1920s and 30s, which were uh, brutally suppressed. This misplacing of equating republicanism and secularism that you highlighted is apparent in my examination of the Islamic and liberal republicanisms and their more open views towards religion. For example, the Islamists would never picture a republic without religion. In the same vein, for liberals, toleration was one of their central themes in their thinking. However, um, these differences regarding the republic and religious questions have not disappeared and it has not been resolved. What we see now is revenge towards the early Kemalist policies by the Islamists who felt oppressed and underrepresented in Turkey. They still feel a strong possibility of combining religion and republicanism, which could very likely lead to further conflicts and tensions in my country. Today, the political climate in Turkey is deeply polarized between the CHP, the Republican People's Party, and Erdogan's AKP, the Justice and Development Party. While Kemalism, though often championed with nostalgia, does not seem to provide a feasible alternative to Erdogan's regime, do you think that any of the visions that you recover in your book might provide a starting point for rethinking and reforming Turkish republicanism today? Today, Turkish politics has turned into a battleground between Islamism and Kemalism. But challenges to republicanism today come in various forms. Some believe that Kemalism is no longer capable of uh, motivating the electorate, as you just mentioned. Um, others argue that sovereignty no longer belongs to the nation, all remains is uh, government by self-serving elites. Instead of democratic institutions, there is only presidential power. So in the recent years, there has been a sense of pervading pessimism about the future of the um, Turkish Republic. So an inquiry into the evolution of Turkish republicanism helps us to rethink what sources are available to respond to the current challenges. If these two rival strands of republicanism fail to provide the needed solutions, then there remains a third concept of republicanism, and that's liberal republicanism. 
I propose returning to and recovering debates on republicanism and to draw on historical analysis in our treatment of present-day Turkish republicanism. So we should read liberal thinkers like Namık Kemal, Hüseyin Cahit and Velid Ebuziyat more attentively and, le- and learn from their ideas like uh, liberty, uh, free and secular society and a diverse community in order to create stronger and more meaningful social bonds. Of course, the past is fundamentally different from the present. For that reason, it must be understood in its own terms. But I suggest that the liberals might have discovered some ideas that transcend time and can still be relevant today. They can teach us that republicanism and democracy should not be reduced to majoritarianism, but it's about values, the increased um, dialogue between different ideas and groups, a strict separation between powers, a strong government and independent judiciary. I do think that studying different contexts and histories is very crucial to how modern Turkey can move forward and progress. Finally, you have another book project in the works. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I recently signed another book contract with Princeton University Press. Um, The provisional title is The Eastern Question, A New History, and the book is due 2021. So my second book will tell the story of the evolution of the term the Eastern Question from a spatial concept into a political, ideological, and later into a more complex geographical, cultural, and civilizational term. It will cover a period uh, which spans more than a century, from the early 19th century until the end of the First World War I. So I should probably briefly explain what the Eastern Question is. Um, The Eastern Question was an international issue in the 19th century concerning what should have become of the Ottoman Empire, the Sigmund of Europe. It concerned whether and how the Ottoman territories should be partitioned, uh, Christian minorities protected, Ottoman finances controlled, and the Ottoman Empire civilized by the West. So my primary aim here is to systematically explore the Eastern question from the Ottoman perspective, contrasting this with the Western approaches in a novel way. In this regard, it will be a work on the Ottomans' Western question, or their reaction to imperialism, um, drawing extensively on archival uh, sources. In this work, then, I'm shifting uh, towards a direction of international political theory, as I'm not only going to focus on Ottoman political thought, but I will also look at the debates on imperialism and interventionism in Britain, France, and Russia. A further aim is to write the first intellectual history of the Eastern question. Whereas most scholarship focuses on the question's diplomatic, economic, or military aspects, it has received no systematic treatment through the lens of the history of political thought. So this book um, will aim to expand the scope of the history of political thought and global intellectual history, allowing us to think more inclusively and to take more seriously how other non-Western peoples understand and imagine politics, society and international order. That is it for today. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for inviting me. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. Mm-hmm.